Hello and welcome in to another episode of the Esports Network Podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Reams, and today we are talking to Cam Kelly. He's the Chief Marketing Officer for Complexity Gaming. Cam, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Absolutely, man. My pleasure. Really excited to talk to Cam. We're going to talk about a whole lot of different topics. Uh, he recently started with Complexity, actually coming up on his one-year anniversary. We're going to talk about the relationship with the Dallas Cowboys between Complexity, one of the coolest parallels between sports and esports we have. We're going to talk a little bit about franchise leagues, and we're going to be talking about the floodgate opening for brands in esports and all the different ways brands are now entering the space. So really wide range of conversation we've got for you today. First, I want to talk to you. So you joined Complexity in November of 2018. We're coming up on your one-year anniversary. Looking back at the last year, what is something you learned that you wish you knew about esports going in? <laughs> Man, that's a loaded question. Um, you know, I think I've been passionate about esports for a really long time, but I think one of those one of those big things that you learn is, you know, coming from the agency world, you're pretty used to a fast-paced environment. Um, but I think with the pace of change um, and innovation that we're seeing in esports, um, I don't know that I was prepared. I don't know that the industry was prepared to see as much change and um, momentum behind franchising and some of the new models we're seeing with in-game items and some of the other things we're seeing progress. I think more so than anything, I don't think um, I was prepared for the, the pace of change that we're experiencing in this industry. Yeah, it's been just an insane couple of years uh, with entire tournament structures being created, people moving to whole new models, uh, long-established esports orgs fading away, a bunch of new money entering it. The last two years, three years of esports has just been sort of a whirlwind. Yeah, absolutely. I think you kind of see, I think you said it really well, where you're just kind of seeing some of the juggernauts and and, and giants that we've seen um, in the space for long periods of time um, change their models completely or become acquired or um, some of those unique things that I think if you would have asked me a year ago, if I would have met, uh, you know, imagined those things taking place, I, I definitely would have said no. So <laughs> couldn't agree with you more on that front. What are some of the things that have happened in your first year of complexity that sort of fit into that? What are, what are some of these rapid changes that the, you know, Complexity is a really long running esports organization, but even with 16 years of history, it's still, uh, it's still time for, for changes in your organization as well. So what are some of the things that are changing within Complexity right now or in the last year? Yeah. One of the, one of the privileges of, of being, as deeply integrated within the Cowboys infrastructure as we are, is being able to apply some of those key learnings, not just from our 16 years of experience and being one of the oldest esports orgs in the Western Hemisphere, but also seeing some of those application elements from traditional sports that we can apply here. And I think that comes in a number of different you know, uh, formats, whether it's the focus on fitness and holistic well-being and the application of some of those tried and true um regimen applications within traditional sports towards esports and seeing the impact that that can have on overall playing player well-being. So I think it's been exciting. Obviously, our HQ opening the GameStop Performance Center um, here right at the star, right next door to the Cowboys HQ was a big push towards that, where we have training centers and, and training rooms that can replicate the land center experience from the lighting to the temperature to the height of the desks, what, you know, what equipment they're using can be completely and totally customized so that we're relying more on environmental recall than we were ever in the past. You know, our 
ability to leverage uh, assets like the training table, which is the cafeteria that the Cowboys players use, um, to keep a, a heightened focus on nutrition and the impact that nutrition has on our players and their performance as well as their overall well-being. Those are things I don't think we've seen enough of in esports, and it's been really tremendous for us to see the impact that that has on players, um, both in the short term as well as when it's applied long term. So those are the big things for us, innovation and a focus on next, that unique set ownership for us where we're not out there raising as often as others might um have to, given the nature of the business, we have the ability to, instead of focusing on the next six or 18 months, we have the ability to focus on the next 10 years. And I think that has a, a really strong impact on our approach and how we how we look at the space overall. I think that's so important too, because there's so many people who enter esports and they're expecting nearly immediate returns on their investment. And at the core of it, Esports is a long, you're, you're playing the long game when you, when you enter esports. You know, we have, you look at high schools and middle schools right now, and they're filled with kids who are so digitally native and just love esports. Well, when they eventually have purchasing power 10 years down the road, it's going to be huge. It's going to be a ton more revenue than we're seeing right now. And anybody who's entering the space right now, maybe and expects returns in two to three years, is probably not playing on the correct timetable, in my opinion. So it's cool to see that, you know, y'all are focused on 10 years down the line and building a brand that's the biggest then, because that'll be more important than building the brand that's the biggest in 2020 or 2021. I'd rather be the biggest in 2030. <laughs> no, I definitely agree. I mean, at the end of the day, the day, it's a business and we have to have our eyes towards um, success in in revenue as much as we have success and competition. So there's definitely a focus on that. It's not so much that we neglect it by any means. It's more so that um, we have the ability to think beyond just that or beyond being a media entity or an entertainment organization. Um, you know, we, we, we want to be a competitively viable professional team. Um, and so with that comes unique challenges, but a, a ton of unique opportunities where we have a little bit of a heightened focus on that infrastructure and the assets and the investment that we have in player um, and player care. Um, you know, I think it it is a bit unique, um, but there's a definitely a lot of return to be had um, on that front as well. It's just a different focus from what may be a typical kind of CPM or influencer based model. Yeah, the the player care aspect is so important for esports because one of the things, one of the biggest hurdles for esports is the burnout issue and having people retire at you know their their mid to late twenties and building out esports players' careers so that they suddenly are, you know, they're building their brand year after year. I always use the the comparison of to basketball. Imagine if LeBron James retired at age 26 before he ever won an NBA title. Where would his brand be? And it's that's the same thing as esports is really if I think this focus that uh, brands like Complexity are doing and now we're seeing Nike do it a little bit in the LPL. It's so important to focus on player health, player wellness to hopefully prolong their careers and have them play better in the short term and play longer when it gets down to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think up till this point, we've really kind of commoditized the individual, right? Like they become a means um, to an organizational end. And I think that's not true investment. And I think that's definitely how you get, you quickly grow and rapidly grow an industry. So not, not for the fault of the industry or those who have helped build it by any means. I think more so now, as we think about those high school students, junior high students, so we think about the collegiate environment, if we're not investing in the overall well-being of 
of those individuals who are participating and helping our brands grow and helping build the industry up long term, then we're doing a disservice and we're not taking those key learnings from what we've seen take place in um, some traditional sports and other things like that. So I think it's important that we we start to prioritize we start to prioritize the the individuals in a, in a bigger way. And I think we do that in a lot of different ways, not just from the infrastructure that we provide the players, but also from the um, focus that we have on post-play opportunities. So we have a platform within um, within our an organization that we call PPO, or what we say is ensuring for post-play opportunities. So, you know, Someone like Matt Warden Dickens, who was on our Counter-Strike team um, way back in the day, is now the manager of our team. And we've seen people from our organization, whether through introductions that, that we've made or helped um, their careers um, you know, impacted directly or from their own merit and the experience they've taken from here, have gone on to do incredible things. When you think of it's Shroud or Jordan Gilbert or Mr. X or a number of different people who have been involved here have gone on to do some really incredible things. And so I think we take a lot of pride in, in the preparation and investment that we're putting in those players. I think the players really appreciate that as well. Ultimately, esports is always going to be a grind. And so making sure that they have different career options after that is going to be important as they choose which organization they want to partner with. So I want to circle back a little bit to the Dallas Cowboys stuff. Sure. In this age where we're seeing so much sports money enter esports, whether it's through uh, investments in companies or through things like Cronky Sports and Entertainment, which is you know an entirely new esports organization focused on the franchise leagues. But Complexity's relationship with the Dallas Cowboys is so close. I mean, even the logos now <laughs> match each other. And it, it's very clearly a Cowboys based brand with the with the headquarters right next to it. So what does it mean to have, you know, the Dallas Cowboys is one of the five most valuable sports brands in the world. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. That stat? Number one. <laughs> number one. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I would have I guessed uh, one of the Premier League teams or something like that. So number one most valuable uh, sports brand in the world. What does it mean to have that tied to an esports organization? Does that open up some doors that maybe would have been closed in if there was a different organization? Oh, it's everything, man. I mean, it, it really is. I think they, you know, I, I can't, I, you know, I'm comfortable enough to to frequently say that we are, you know, by far the most integrated esports organization that that's affiliated with a traditional sports organization. I think there is a difference between. Um, an investment with separation and investment with integration. And I think that's what we've been able to accomplish here is, you know, our players, again, are eating at the cafeteria. They're working out in the same facilities as as their players. But even beyond that, from a corporate structure standpoint, you know, we're, we're engaged with their sales and partnerships teams, with their social team, with their content team, with their legal team. Um, so again, when we're talking about the advantages of taking those key learnings and, and making it two-way from our perspective and their perspective, it's really tremendous you know and i think having their input on the design of our hq or having their input on the way in which we're structuring relationships whether that be on partners or player side um, it's tremendously valuable and it's opened up a number of different doors another good example is you know we right across the street from from one of the leading um, sports medical facilities in the country with baylor scott and white sports medical center and the access that that provides our players to engage with their team over there and we can start developing key insights and learning through the metrics that they're able to garner combined with the metrics that we're bringing to the table from our partnerships with people like Mamba Sports Academy um, is, is really tremendous. And it's really never been 
kind of seen before in esports. I know we've seen a lot of investment from traditional sports organizations. I think the difference here is that it's it's that integration element within their larger infrastructure and within their ecosystem that is just incredibly valuable. I mean, you, you don't have to be an expert to know that that uh, you know Mr. Jones and and the crew over there know what they're doing. Um, so it is amazing for us. I think a lot of people assume with our rebrand that it was just kind of a let's get it, let's get the star, and let's do it um, as simply as possible. In fact, we we probably went through around yeah somewhere between two hundred fifty and two hundred seventy five different logo variations. We tested them. Um, we looked at what the reception was of those from a variety of con- you know stakeholders as well as you know those kind of gen pop focus groups and things and and where we landed was the direct result of that focus and you know there were some interesting ones that were tossed to the side and maybe someday we'll be comfortable comfortable enough to publish some of them but you know it there is a a level of integration and there is also a level of autonomy. And I think they, we accomplished both with such grace, um, you know, that I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it in esports. And I think we're tremendously blessed to, to be a part of that organization, especially with that level of, of investment from their end and, and integration from their end. I really don't think there is anything like it in esports. I mean, you can run through some of the sports owners who are part of esports. You've got NRG who's, owned by Andy Miller, who's a partial owner of the Kings. and But it's not like they're completely tied. The Kings have a gaming center in in their arena, but it, it doesn't feel – it feels like Andy Miller has this, and then the Kings, he's also not the majority owner, so it's not like Jerry Jones here, where he's such a recognizable face of the, of the organization. So it, it's such a cool and unique relationship. Do you think it's something we see – happen to other esports orgs down the line as they get further integrated with some of the sports owners who are so happy to invest in esports right now. Yeah, I mean different models work for different organizations. I mean I I do hope it is something that we see um you know investment coming from those who have that value proposition towards the esports organization. Um, you know, I think what we've been able to see and, and the impact that it's had on our players, on our staff, on our output has been amazing. And so we do wish the same on on organizations who do have that direct affiliation. I think we saw some exciting news out of Minnesota today, um, you know, with their their COD franchise and the level of integration that they're they're gonna have there. And, you know, I think w- we're hopeful that we see more of it. There are some really strong key learnings we need to see more of that heavy focus on fitness, the heavy focus on review and, um, and strategy development and, um, infrastructure that I think is going to be tremendously important to the advancement and the progression of our, of our industry overall. And as well as the professionalization of the treatment of players and, and, and their well being overall, I think it is going to be a key, a key part of that transition. Not to say that those who aren't invested in by traditional sports will won't get there on their own as well, because um, I, I think they will, you know, through key learnings, partnerships, insights, you know, keeping a heavy focus on data and, and research and development and testing. But I, I really do think that, that there's a lot to gain from, you know, learning from those who have been there and perhaps being so bold as to say not making some of the same mistakes that we've seen in traditional sports and, and other areas and, and trying to get ahead of, of some of the challenges that we're facing now and that we will face in the future. So that's actually a great point and something I wanted to get to on my next question. We've talked a lot about what esports can learn from traditional sports, but you came from being pretty heavily in the traditional sports world as did I in college. And I'm curious what you think 
traditional sports could learn from esports? What are some takeaways that you've seen in esports that something traditional sports still needs to work on or still needs to learn? Yeah, it's a two-way street. Um, I think there's there's still plenty we can learn from them. But in terms of of what what I think traditional sports may benefit from from an esports perspective is the level of access and um, engagement that fans in esports have. You know, I think the way that we're seeing more customization for the spectator experience. I think we saw some really great advances this year with virtual tickets and more control over the the viewing experience, as well as you know some of those live chat functions, whether it be on Twitch or other platforms. You know, I think there's something really interesting there that doesn't create these microcosms or micro communities within fandom um, in traditional sports, rather that there's this really great and mass conversation that doesn't rely so heavily on social media and, and has this really great kind of in the moment direct interaction between fans is, is exciting. And I hope we see more of that in traditional sports. I think we already are. Um, you know, so I think that's that's a great part of it. I also think that there's ways to reach the, the next generation um, in where they are. Um, they're unique, um, really unique. And I think um, as we think about Gen Z taking over purchasing power by 2020 and seeing what impact that has on the way we try to reach them, I think there are some really strong key learnings in in the rapid growth of esports because it does kind of fit directly into their entertainment consumption habits. They are you know, the quickest to respond to interactions within culture uh, amongst their peer groups and beyond. They are um, the least receptive to advertising with 72% using ad blockers versus, you know, 20% of the regular population. They are making more money. They are less connected to their, um, you know, their their general surroundings and are more flexible, you know, whether you call them digital nomads or, or transients is up to you. But I think there's a, there's a lot of things that we can start to really appreciate and respect that generation beyond their purchasing power and more so in their habits and behaviors and, you know, each of them being kind of a unique individual within what is the larger mosaic of, of culture is, is an important level of respect I think we need to have for them. So I'm hoping we start to see that in other fields, not just traditional sports, but in broader entertainment as well. Um, I think, you know, music's had to adapt over the last 10, 15 years as such. And I hope that we, we get there as well from a, from a traditional sports and sports broadcast perspective. Yeah, that's the common thread with uh, the digital world we live in is just about everybody is having to adapt right now. It's hard. You'd be hard pressed to find somebody who's not currently undergoing some form of adaptation, whether it's, you know, in journalism, you've got cable subscriptions going away. You have print newspapers closing, people moving over to digital media. You could extend that to almost every industry. So it's so important for brands to be really wheeling right now and being like, okay, maybe these traditional structures we use to reach people in this demo, like you said, 72%. Using ad blockers. I mean, I've got ad blockers running right now, so I'm part of it. <laughs> I write for Ad Week, and I have ad blockers running. So it's like, <laughs> it, that's funny. It's tough. It's tough, and that's just the world we live in. And so it's so important for brands to somehow find different ways to reach this audience that they used to be able to reach through through generic ads. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of brands invest in esports because it's hard to it's nearly impossible to ad block something that's part of the official broadcast. So it opens up a commercial in front of it. They're actually sponsoring the event itself and it gets around those ad blockers. It reaches that audience that is so hard to reach. 
Yeah, and I think we have to also do more, though, because, you know, I think that a lot of the times we try to replicate what's been done in, you know, historically in traditional sports. And I think we have seen some unfortunate instances of logo slapping. I think it's important um, for brands and and producers of goods, if you will, to start to tailor their offering, uh, goods and services, I should say, to tailor their offering to the unique experience of these individuals. And I think that's one of the big things that we work on and have had a lot of success with, you know, all of our partners is, you know, have a unique narrative, have a unique value proposition to your, to this community, um, because that's what they're looking for. You know, they're not looking to be sold to or exposed to a product. In fact, a lot of them, most of them, if not all of them are much more savvy in doing their own research and finding the right products and right brands that are better representations of, um, or, you know, better connected to who they are and feel like that, that really truly represents them. Um, And so, I think, you know, taking it one step further, if I may, is it's not so simple as finding the right mechanisms to communicate your product offering. Rather, it's the reverse of, of tailoring and, and um, shifting your product offering to be more aware of their environment and what they're experiencing, not just from an esports fan perspective, but from a Gen Z perspective. And then the generation that follows, you know, we're not we're not now saying they're the digital natives. Like these are digital dependents. These are people who are looking for something really especially unique. Um, and I think we've tried to force fit some some old um, old habits um, in the past. And I'm excited to see some really um, really interesting applications of of how to reach these consumers where they are versus kind of tried and true um, advertising techniques. Um, so that that's that's really exciting, and I think I think we just need to do more of it and see more of it um, across the board. Yeah, it's been a it's been a very key theme in successful brand activations in esports versus unsuccessful ones, and a lot of it comes down to just the energy behind it and showing that you understand the community that you are trying to market to here. Uh, one great example is Mercedes Benz uh, and their work they did with ESL talked about that a little bit in the podcast before this one, actually with uh, ESL's vice president of brand partnerships. And what made Mercedes so successful is that they embraced the meme and people on Twitch chat started talking about the Mercedes S class as a joke. And then Mercedes, the official account sent out some tweets and we're, and we're using the meme format that Twitch chat used and it just did amazing engagement, but it just showed a brand that was a understood the space they were in and wasn't afraid for some self-deprecation be like, yes, we know we're a brand in esports. This is funny. And it worked really well. I think that's such an important lesson for a lot of brands as they enter esports is just the esports community is going to run with you. They're going to kid with you. They're going to, they're going to poke fun at your brand, at some of the brand activations you try to do. You need to be able to run with that if you want the activation to be successful in the end. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's evolution. I mean, that's that's adapt or die. Um, so it is great to see that type of engagement and commitment to flexibility. Um, you know, as much as it is kind of, you know, poking fun at yourself, it is also... Um, understanding the community and having a two-way conversation. Um, and I think that's the, that's really the biggest shift is, is making individuals feel like they're part of your brand, opening yourself up to their, um, to their input and, and to what they have to offer you um, is amazing. I mean, that, you know, that kind of culturally generated um, 
excitement about a partnership like that is is rare and, it, and it's exciting to see. But it, it, it first took a brand to be comfortable enough to do that. And I think you can go back and look at other examples, you know, in traditional sports with Oreo with the blackout is typically what people refer to as making a, a direct product application to a unique, you know, opportunistic um, chance to strike gold. And I think, you know, that those are good examples. But, you know, I think it also has just come, from, you know, that kind of key lesson of, you know, be flexible, be adaptable, and 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 be open to to change, and and you'll see like that stuff like that happen a lot more often. Definitely, and people are people in the esports industry are very brand apprehensive, but when you get it in the right way, uh, the Paul Brewer from ESL sent me a clip of fans literally chanting DHL, <laughs> and you're never going to find that happening in traditional sports world. So even though people are brand adverse, they somehow were a brand was able to get. The arena to literally chant their brand name that's pretty remarkable <laughs> i wouldn't say we won't ever see it in, in traditional sports i think again it's it's just that um it's about the culture that you create and the value the value proposition that you have towards um towards those fans and and you know again being flexible enough to encourage that type of engagement um you know there's other examples of it i think that dhl one is is is, is pretty fun um but you know, again, it just it it starts with a different ideology. It starts with a fundamentally different approach to a fan base, and and you'll see a whole lot more of that. Yeah, I definitely hope so. It's really been really cool to see how all the different ways brands are getting involved in the esports space, and that takes us to some of your previous work. So, in an interview you you did with the Esports Insider, you said that being a key part in the Toyota and Overwatch League partnership was the first notable thing you had done in gaming. What did you see in the course of doing that deal that pushed you to now working full-time in esports? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it it started before that. I think, you know, I've always had an interest. I've always been, you know, I've always been a gamer myself. Um, so I've, I've been kind of looking for opportunities to weave that into my professional experience. And I saw the op, I was requested by um, my manager at the time when I was on at UEG to to look into the white spaces within the sports agency marketplace, you know, when you're putting a, a smaller, more boutique agency up against the behemoths like Octagon and, um, and Endeavor and, 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 you know, UTA, et cetera, where they're really weaving in great brand partnerships with talent, you have to find something that you can really take, take hold of and shape how brands activate in that space. And so it was really easy to look at esports as it, you know, no one's at that point in time, and at least in 2014, um, early 2015, they hadn't really done a good job of, of kind of ironing out the archetypal, you know, brand engagement within that scene. And so once I've kind of communicated that out there, then it was about, okay, now we can hit the marketplace and say, you know, we really want to bring this these opportunities to our clients. And just by opening up that conversation, we had a robust number of opportunities from, you know, a, a number of different developers and publishers and leagues to, to find those really strong ways to integrate brands. And I think there had been some good case studies of people doing it already. I think Toyota did some fun stuff with with Sims before we ever even started to have the conversation about esports. And they had done a lot of due diligence in, in, in reaching through gaming um, a new type of consumer. So I think it was a, a little bit of a match made in heaven. And, you know, for for the, the notable ones that we accomplished, there's probably 10 or 15 really great ones that just didn't have the budget or didn't, weren't able to get sold in. Um, but that Toyota one specifically 
the the biggest key learning in there is that you have to have a real um, a real narrative to connect your product or your service or your offering to the fan base in a way that's easily digestible and it's not force fed. Um, you're facilitating or lack, you know, at the at the fright of becoming a very punny. Um, you have to be kind of a vehicle for that value proposition. And so when it came to to building out the Toyota program. Um, taking a tagline let's like let's go places and applying it to what is what was at the time the one of the most unique player um environments to date within esports you know a franchise league hadn't really been done in the past you know they they it was a new type of player experience you know we had they had been looking at combines and drafts and things that hadn't been applied in the esports world so let's go places really truly meant something um really truly meant something to this fan base and to the players and so when you started working on things like the series access granted where we're physically driving the players and having a conversation with their match with you know uh mr x or you know some of the integrations we did with with pucket um you know getting him a chr as his life was transitioning towards um you know, planning to have kids and settling down and, and showcasing that you can still be uh, fun and exciting with the CHR while also accommodating your new lifestyle. Like there are so many unique elements within the Toyota program that really spoke to, I think, what is what was a really unique opportunity at the time. And, you know, I think we were tremendously successful in that regard, especially when you look at key KPIs like brand affinity and lift and purchase intent, where you're starting to see you know, double digit percentage growths and, and shifts from um, placement within consumers mind, especially considering that 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 fan base has a, a, a really high likelihood of purchasing a car within the next six to nine months. So all of those factors combined, once you've acknowledged them, you've identified the infights, it becomes so much more simple and so much easier to um, organically or naturally find that foothold for a brand. I think some, some categories are easier. I think the two examples we've used in this discussion so far have both been auto um, and I'm happy that we were able to figure out the kind of first full season auto sponsorship in a, in a franchise league in esports, and it was really tremendously successful. And I think everybody involved um, was happy with that with that partnership overall. But it, it it does start at the nucleus or the genesis, being what is your value proposition? How do you showcase your offering in a way that feels like it meets the players and the fans and the and the league where they are? Um, and isn't too much of a force fit, um, and it isn't too much of an overstatement or an oversell. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of that. We still see, again, some of that, you know, old habits, die hard stuff in advertising um, affecting esports as well. But the people like the guys over at Overwatch League and, and their their structure over there, as well as the foresight that Toyota had to invest and bring that um, bring that to life is a testament to um, that focus on, on, a, on a unique value proposition to your fans. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's funny that it just seems like auto really hits the esports industry so well. I, I can think of different activations with Kia, with General Motors, with Honda, and, and League of Legends. It just feels like it's a very natural part of the auto marketing budget is to hit this hit this industry, which is something you might not have considered if you looked at e- esports even just you know four or five years ago that these big purchase uh Brands that normally target, you know, late 20s, early 30s, people who are buying cars, and now they see esports as a way to hit that audience. It's, it's an interesting uh, development we've seen as more and more brands have entered esports. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, perhaps. I think at the same time, I think that look looking at who the demographics are, the psychographics, where they are in their life stage, I think it's it really is actually a match made in heaven. I mean, that was that that early stage of, you know, whether you're looking at it from a perspective of the primary audiences between sixteen and twenty-four, um, you know, I, I think that is a ripe age for, you know, growing that affinity to to an auto company and making your next purchase with that organization that does speak to you. So I find it to be, you know, that and a few other categories become incredibly relevant. I think where we're finding other challenges is in, uh, like you said, other industries where you're looking at, you know, that that decision making happening between, you know, late, you know, late twenties, early thirties, or even beyond, I think there's a general lack of interest or perhaps the the perspective that things like insurance or, or other categories are, are boring, but it's actually really exciting now that we're seeing, um, you know, from those test and learn experiences that, that industries like insurance have done in the past, we're seeing those companies tailor their offering for those fans based on that feedback. Um, and, and that's really again, showcases the power that, that gaming and esports has to impact industry and to impact culture much more broadly than just competition or spectatorship, um, changing the way the game is played, um, for, you know, another pun, um, is definitely something we're seeing the impact of esports have on big business. Yeah. The, uh, you're right. Some people might see insurance or, uh, maybe credit card companies as boring, but I see that (laughs) I see those kind of things. I'm like, Awesome. This is, yep. <laughs> this just shows uh, a maturing of the audience they're targeting here. It's not, it's no longer just gamers. It's gamers as average people, basically, which is what they are. And so you no longer have just chairs, headphones, energy drinks, things directly associated with gaming. And now you just have things like State Farm, MasterCard, uh, Amex that are all doing some work in esports. It's really, really cool to see. Yeah, and it's and it's remarkably intelligent. I think you know for that same reason we talked about auto, those are, that's where the opportunity exists for a lot of these brands too. Whether you're an airline or a credit card or you know an eyewear manufacturer or, or you're in um, you know you're in massage therapy or whatever it is, I think there is a way for you to find that foothold where you can be of tremendous value to that fan base. It's just you have to spend the time and due diligence to really know who they are and also to respect the the preferences you know 81 percent of the audience only follows one title or genre 71 percent only one title period so when we're talking about the level of respect that's required here but at the same time you're still blanket terming or umbrella terming esports without the first the qualifier of you know fifa esports or league of legends esports or whatever it is those those demographics and psychographics change those habits change by game there's a different type of individual um that's playing madden than than that's playing even fifa or that's playing a a real-time strategy game or a card game and so you really do have to you really do have to do some work there. No different than if you were working in university sports or it'd be the same as if, you know, a brand came to an agency or whoever and said, you know, I want to do something in sports. Well, like what a, what a broad and, and, and troubling, <laughs> you know, right. Yeah. So I think we just, again, it, go, it comes back to a respect and a, and a level of understanding for this fan base. That's, that's really required to be successful. I think that's a big opportunity for the, for esports organizations as well, because they're sort of something that doesn't exist in the sports world. Sports are focused in on that one exact title. And while brands are too, if they want to get 
a wide-ranging activation that hits a variety of different genres. Partnering with an esports organization does that for you in a lot of ways. I mean, with Complexity, you have CSGO and FIFA, which, like you said, are two completely different audiences. You have Fortnite, you have Rocket League. You just have all these different areas you can hit. And so esports organizations sort of have this really impressive value add because they can connect with that wide range of activations and demographics while giving brands sort of a focal point to start the business, start start getting into this audience a little bit and figuring out where they do align within the audience. Is the FIFA, are they, are they seeing a lot of response to the FIFA activation and not so much from the CSGO side or whatever that may be that might inform brands as they want to spend future sponsorship dollars in the space, but first by aligning with an esports organization to get a better market research over where their brand does align. Sure. And yeah, I mean, I think there is that foundational narrative that becomes a key factor here. And I think those brands that do have that that in mind as they're approaching it, but with the flexibility to tailor it accordingly, there, you know, you do have to have that, that, um, proposition or that offering that's going to be unique for the fan base. And that can be tailored across games, right? Like, you know, I think you can find your way in as long as your, your core function, your core um, narrative is established, you can find your way into those different, different communities as, as long as you're being respectful um, as long as you're being respectful and, and cognizant of their preferences and the right memes and, you know, the one meme is not going to work the same as another in across different games. And so you just, again, you just have to be kind of flexible and understanding. Um, I think the team advantage is unique. Um, you know, you don't have a singular focus. I can take that narrative and make sure that it's being, um, it's being handled carefully. I can take those marks. I can take that tagline. I can take the programming that you have and the offering that you have and, and work accordingly to ensure that that's not infringed upon or damaged within any of these individual communities within esports. Um, with a special level of care. I think, you know, that's, that's both, it's kind of double edge, right? It's, it's the gift and the curse. It's the challenge and the opportunity. Um, and, and we take that on um, pretty willingly. I think it also starts with organizations and the industry overall being much more honest with the data, being much more honest with the information that's available. Um, you know, there's a big, a big difference between the North American esports audience and some of those internationally and the habits and the access and the, um, challenges and opportunities that, that are there. Um, I think it, it, in a lot of instances, we've overinflated some of the metrics or we've overinflated some of the viewership or we've overinflated some of the attendance numbers, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, the good brand activations are going to be reliant on good data and information. So, you know, it, it really is on us to be reporting that honestly and the industry to reporting that honestly so that brands have the opportunity to maximize the value that they're getting. And then we'll see much more investment and we'll see budgets opening up a whole lot more. And it's maybe seeing some of that be taken out of, you know, traditional sports marketing or programmatic media spend and, and appreciating the direct to consumer value that esports can have and the real time feedback and the real time activations um, that can come out of it just get better and better. I'm glad you brought up data because I do think that's one of the key areas that esports needs to improve upon. Uh, just when you look at how viewership is tracked, and now we're seeing Activision Blizzard and Riot working closely with Nielsen to try and get accurate data that allows for apples to apples comparison of sports to esports viewership. But it's still a little ways away. I mean, I was just looking up 
uh, League of Legends viewership, and I saw something from CNBC. It said League of Legends has more viewers than the Super Bowl. Posted in <laughs> 2019. So yeah. this isn't something that happened in 2016 before we knew better. It's still being propagated as this myth, and some of the the leagues don't that that's a great headline for riot games and while it's not exactly accurate it's it's hard to to get away from those numbers and be like hey not as many people are watching as you might have originally thought so how do how do you balance that when trying to get <laughs> good data at, to to different brands where where they're like we're not exactly sure what what the investment, what we're getting back from this. So how do you balance that lack of really great data when you're working with brands and trying to bring brands into the space? <laughs> Put me on the spot, Mitch. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Jeff, uh, I had to do it. <laughs> no, it's good. It's a wonderful question and it needs to be asked more often. Um, look, it's a, it's a new type of media um, and there's, and there's multiple platforms. You look at the way someone like EA broadcasts a, a FIFA competition, right? Where they're, they're across Facebook and Twitch and YouTube and Twitter, and they have a number of different avenues. And each of those channels has a different unique way that they're tracking viewership and they're tracking engagement. And there's not a lot of consistency at times where, you know, one needs to match up with the other in the same way that it has historically in, in, in other broadcast systems systems. Um, so, you know, it, there is a unique challenge there, but it, it also, you know, data in the hands of the right people can be tremendously powerful. I think data in the wrong hands can be manipulated and, you know, and adjusted to be in the best interests of, of the stakeholders that are, are looking to have the most return from that. And I think that's, you know, a blanket statement that's consistent in any industry, but I think more so right now because of our rapid growth and things, it's it's much more advantageous for those um, those organizations and media properties to take advantage of that now. I think we're starting to see that balance with better tracking and people like Nielsen and Interpret and you know Stream Hatchet and um, and other social uh, tracking platforms, Sidekick and others, doing great due diligence. But not only that, but putting the power in the hands of the organizations that are are broadcasting or building teams or running tournaments, etc., to have that reporting be in um, in their hands and in and kind of more proof in the pudding, if you will, of, of seeing what the social engagement really looks like, what the viewership really looks like, segmenting it, understanding the international impact. You know, I think that's one of the biggest challenges in, in, in esports right now is consistency from market to market um, and across platforms. Um, you know, it's different. Spectatorship is different in, in China than it is in the EU, than it is in South America and Africa and, and the US. Um, and sometimes reporting is much more challenging. And it's in the same way when we talk about age, um, you know, a lot of our viewership is is below the age where you can really track that. Um, you know, we're seeing a significant level of viewership for games like Rocket League and Fortnite be under 16. Um, and so it can be really challenging to have accurate demographic and psychographic data there. So in some instances, it's not even the researchers or, or the data aggregators faults that, you know, some of that information is not deduplified or validated in a variety of different ways as it as it should be or as it would be in, in traditional, um, because there are some of those restrictions in the way that you're acquiring that information. And so I think there there's challenges challenges, just as much as I think that there has been some inflation and, and perhaps misrepresentation, I think there's also those 
challenges that we've never faced before in entertainment um, that are presenting unique um, opportunities to find innovations. And that's really exciting on the other end of seeing new, new and unique ways of tracking that information, measuring value, measuring spectatorship, measuring engagement that are much more accurate and, and more specifically tailored to OTT and live engagement and, and new social platforms. And, you know, I think it's exciting to see activations on TikTok and on, on platforms like Cameo and Looped and some of those new types of media coming out. But even those are going to require um, new and unique ways of tracking to make sure that the information that we're garnering from that is is accurate and then um, monitored. That matters a ton. And ultimately, when you get to it, you're going to hear good things. It's growing for sure. It's just the rate at which it's growing. It's market projections, it's revenues. But ultimately, in esports, we talked about this earlier, how complexity is on like a 10-year plan. In 10 years, esports is going to be much bigger than it is today. That's a guarantee. Now, will it hit market projections for the next two years? Who knows? It depends on probably where those market projections came from. But that's really the long game. Like you mentioned, these kids who are under 16, I actually hadn't really thought about that age problem and how people are misreporting or the, the data is coming from... Could you break that down a little bit? Why is that age and people under 16 make it hard to get the demographics? For people who aren't as familiar with how these conversations go, why is that so difficult when trying to figure out who is watching and who is consuming content? Yeah, I mean, first you have to kind of understand the foundations. We have a a term we use here internally. that we like to talk about is called the feeder principle. And the feeder principle talks about the difference in the level of exposure that this new generation has by comparison to the previous generation. So for example, first introduction point that someone has to gaming, um, spectatorship, competitive environments, et cetera, um, you're starting at two with your introduction to a mobile phone in a lot of instances. And then you start to see that um, be infused into some of their environmental um Inputs. So, for example, if you have a member of the family that's in the military or you, your family frequents uh, Renaissance fairs, right, you can see two kind of separate ends of the spectrum in terms of that military involvement is start to impact some of your preferences based on your, um, your environmental um, culture. So you have a higher propensity then in that instance or a higher percentage of likelihood that you'd be interested in, um, you know, a a first person shooter, for example, if you've had a a military member in the family or vice versa, if you, you know, you're typically frequent some of these fantasticals or you have someone in your family who are um, really, really interesting, um, you know, you know, role-playing opportunities, cosplay, etc., that can lead you more towards a World of Warcraft or a, um, an Elder Scrolls or an, uh, an opportunity like that. But all of that all of that starts to happen between the ages of, of kind of two and eight. And around eight, you're exposed to games like Minecraft or Roblox, where you're presented with a variety of different genres and um, examples of those genres from racing to um, first-person shooters to uh, creation opportunities, like what we've seen with games like Sims and and others, um, where you're kind of then now you're put in this situation where you have to kind of pick and choose where you're going to end up. Um, and, and by around the age of 12 or 14, you've really made your preference decision on, you know, what is your preferred genre? What's your preferred IP within that genre that most closely relates to your play style? Um, and so that that key point in time between 12 and, and 18 is really where fandom um 
and esports begins. But based on current regulations, which is totally understandable, um, you know, GDRP, etc., some of the new policies that are in place as it relates to marketing to kids and the exposure you can have to those makes it really challenging to accurately report that. And plus misrepresentation or self-reporting um, platforms where asking someone's age is almost as comical as age gating things on YouTube. Um, it's just ineffectual. Um, so we start to see, um, we start to see that being a focal point in terms of us establishing fandom. You've seen this in other industries, right? Like Denver Broncos, they put the little beanies on the baby's hats when they're born at a local hospital. Um, you know, and it's, you're starting to create fandom. You've seen this done in philanthropy in the past as well, where $25 now is $2,500 in the future in terms of donations and support. Um, and so it's kind of, kind of our example of in, in esports, right? It's just it's just much harder to measure because we have this this new and unique digital media element to it. And so, you know, without the information, it's hard to attract. But at the same time, garnering the information is almost as questionable as the data that led us to the idea that we needed to in the first place. So it's a unique challenge for sure. Um, I think you you see it a little bit easier on social media to gauge age range. Um than you can on Twitch or some of the other broadcasting platforms. Um, so it's, it's, it's a unique challenge, but it's one that we welcome and we, and we look to find solutions there. And, you know, I think it's a, an incredible opportunity and an insane level of accountability for esports organizations, teams, and otherwise to do a whole lot more to appreciate that who you are speaking to, you know, maybe be very well be between the ages of 12 and 18 despite what your you know your cookie or your short link is telling you about them um and so that that's that is a level of responsibility i think we we take it on pretty headstrong you know we did we've been doing summer camps and clinics with gamestop where we're bringing in um kids into the hq and through gaming we we open up an opportunity to talk to them about um you know, personal brand development, content creation, and and sure they're getting to play with pros and things like that. But we do owe them and owe the industry an opportunity, um, or you know, the the service of doing more than that. So we know they're going to be faced with challenging online interactions that involve toxicity, misogyny, homophobia, um, and all of the all of the stuff. Um, that they're going to have to deal with. So us not taking that opportunity and direct interaction as a challenge to try to fix some of that before it can or continues to be a problem um, is, is a, is a big part of it as well. So I think, you know, as in the longest way possible of answering that question, um, I think there, there are some unique elements of that, that age range that need to be considered um, more directly than they have been in the past. I think that's it's really important, especially as you talk about toxicity and some of those issues that are faced by by young kids. And I want to circle back to some more marketing questions. That's your area of expertise. But uh, how do you think you help improve sportsmanship in esports? Where that's something that's been such a key part of you know when you when you play sports as a kid, they really instill sportsmanship. You do the handshake line after after each game, but the anonymous nature of playing games online leads to these really unhealthy levels of toxicity. What can esports do or esports organizations do to help improve that online culture surrounding these games they compete in? Uh, take that pledge, man. You know, like really commit to being, um, being the same that the, the thing that those handshake lines stood for is much more important than the actual handshake lines. You know, I think it's, it's the idea that you're creating an environment that is 
that is inclusive. It's esports is such a great opportunity for us to stop being exclusive. There is no reason that um, you know anybody can't be. Uh, playing at the highest level, whether that be a woman or, you know, the LGBTQ plus community or um, any of the underserved um, communities that we've seen currently in traditional sports and collegiate sports, et cetera. You know, it is, that's, that's the tremendous opportunity that we have in front of us. And it starts with that acknowledgement um, at at the ground level for us to really get there. Um, So, you know, I would say teams need to not be toxic. I think they need to create environments that support each other. I love what, uh, um, you know, C9 and Fnatic did recently, the collaborative work that they did there. I love the, the, um, any key good luck, have fun pledge where there is a commitment towards the better treatment of each other. Um, I, you know, Jason Lake, our, our CEO and founder was, um, recently on a panel and, you know, they were asked, you know, what's your closing remark? And it was just the simple statement of, let's start being kind to each other. Um, and that's such a powerful for, thing to think about is, you know, you see it on, on one end where in-game experiences, people are guiding and they're mentoring, but then all of a sudden you, you throw this level of um, competition in there and it becomes so incredibly toxic and we're not being respectful of those who are perhaps making an entry point into a game um, and rather are so quick to say you're a noob and, and all that other stuff and, and, and not really focus on being mentors and, and, and Sherpas or um, kind of shamans on their, on their journey towards becoming something greater than, than they currently are. Um, so that's what it's really going to take. And teams have the, the, the best positioning in the marketplace to accomplish that um, by being the example, the players being the example. I think there are so many examples of us doing the exact opposite, you know, players treating each other or other competitors in a, in a negative or toxic way is setting an example um, for those no different than when we hold a traditional sports athlete accountable for a poor decision outside of the game. That's, that's set a poor example. I think it's the same thing in esports. We just need to have more accountability, um, on our end because Reddit's going to find it and people are going to read it and then they're going to, you know, shift their behavior accordingly if that's their favorite player. So I think that's, that's really what it's going to start with is us taking this, this space seriously, us taking ourselves seriously, the players seriously, the fans seriously, um, and get away from the heavy reliance on, on, on meme culture or the second someone makes a mistake, we just fry them on a skewer um, without the opportunity to defend themselves or to um, resurge or find a resurgence or a redemption from that moment. Um, You know, rehabilitation is a real thing or a second chance is a real thing. And I think we just need to be much more open to it than we have been. Um, and not so quick to point the finger. I always question when I play online, if any of these people have ever played team sports before (laughs) this idea that your teammate makes a mistake and then you just skewer them for it is if your goal is to win, which uh, based on how serious you are taking this moment right now, Clearly, your goal is to win. Don't attack your teammate because that's the worst thing you could do to reach your goal of winning the match. I it, it baffles me every single time. I'm like, you, you do you realize how this is completely opposite your core goal, and you're just being so salty and toxic. I don't care if the the other team trash talks me. It's when my teammate starts doing that. I'm just like. What is going through your mind right now? How do you think this works in any in any sense of the word? <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, again, I mean, you can you can kind of 
track all this back, whether you're talking about partners or clients or brands or players or teams or whatever, at the end of the day, we need to empower individuals to make an entry into the space and to, you know, guide them through the process to be successful in the space. You know, I, it's, it's really, really sad. I mean, I, I have my son, I have an 11 year old and then I have an 18 month old. And so some of the times I hear interactions online and I'm like, man, that is so different from little league soccer. <laughs> um, you know, whether it's calling someone a, a default or a bot or, you know, all of those, we come up with new and unique names. I think we're more creative with our insults for each other than we are in our support for each other. So I think if we find ways to flip that uh, paradigm or, you know, we'll find a lot more success. And again, we can find ways to to have esports be the example that others should follow versus falling into some of the same traps that we've seen in other um, other sports fields. We're more creative in our insults than we are in our support. I like that. It's a great line. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> That's great. So when you talk about toxicity in esports, I do want to mention the franchise leagues, which have sort of set a little bit of a new standard for, you mentioned how traditional sports leagues punish people who step out of line or the teams do some, not always to the degree that they should probably, but uh, franchise leagues have sort of stepped that up a little bit. You saw that in the first year of the Overwatch League when XQC was speaking out and speaking out not in a very good way. And so it was like, that's not somebody we can have associated with our brand right now. And how much of that is part of why brands have been so eager to invest in franchise leagues because they sort of had this assurance that toxicity would be something they would deal with in a pretty aggressive manner compared to ways in the past. Do you think that's really had an impact on brands being involved in these franchise leagues that have seen, you know, brands like Coca-Cola, Toyota, Nike, MasterCard, all target franchise leagues is the way they want to enter esports. Yeah, I think it's more so that there's a familiarity with the structure. You know, I think one of the biggest concerns that brands have in esports is that there is a general lack of understanding or that it's um, uncontrollable or that, you know, I, I nauseate it every time I hear that it's the Wild West um, and things like that. And the the truth is, is there's just so much nuance in the structure and there's so much variance in each game, etc. And I think what franchise leagues have done is resembled a traditional sports structure or resembled a lot of the, you know, activation formats that are easily understood. You know, you try to have a brand who's a little bit more conservative, create a provocative meme, you know, the layers of approval necessary to do that in real time are uh, prohibitive of their ability to execute in that way. So. You know, I think it, it's more so I think the structure makes more sense to a lot of them. I don't know that it's much a security measure because I think we find that in a lot of instances, you know, individuals are still going to speak their mind. And sometimes that's not going to be something that aligns with the larger league's vision in the same way that it happens in the NFL or that it happens in the NBA. Um, so, you know, I think that might be a, a bit of a false sense of security. Um Whereas I think it, it really is more so the structure that, that leads them to that comfort level. And, you know, I think we have a lot of respect for what the franchise leagues are trying to establish. I think there's a learning experience. I think there's um, some great things that have taken place. But I also think that there's some, you know, sustainability questions and things along those lines that we need to be cognizant of. And, and as team organizations who have been doing this for the better part of the last two decades to inform them of where those challenges are going to continue forward and, and where there are opportunities arising to, to um, 
alleviate some of the burdens associated with the involvement there. So, you know, I think for brands, it makes a lot of sense. I think the spends are high. I think it's a, it's a unique um, opportunity right now. It's really red hot. I think that's exciting. Um, but I also caution, you know, I caution against selecting something based on a level of of familiarity or, or comfort when there is a lot of a lot of reward out there in esports when you can take again you take that narrative and you spread it across a number of different communities you're truly maximizing your potential because if you look at esports as this um rapidly growing industry with a tremendous amount of opportunity for brands to reach a new type of fan and a new type of consumer. But then you go in in one very specific direction with one very specific structure and one very specific league, you've you've really kind of narrowed that down and that the all those numbers that made you interested in the first place from, you know, the, you know, 2 billion plus people who are, are regularly watching esports across the world and all of those things that, that excited you in the first place. Now you've just only given yourself, you know, a decent piece, which is really actually more like one, one twelfth of what that, that total community is. So, you know, I think there's some valid, some validity to that, but I also think there's a little bit of a misconception there and thinking that um, you're getting the maximum value for your, your investment in esports if If you're purely just looking at franchise leagues as a solution. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. And it's also, you mentioned a little bit how complexity is, sort of on the outside looking in and would advocate caution. Well, complexity has teams in 10 different games, I believe it is, but not Overwatch, not League of Legends, and not Call of Duty. Instead, you focus on Counter-Strike, FIFA, Clash Royale, Rocket League, Fortnite, Apex, Madden, Magic the Gathering Arena, Hearthstone, Stream team and then limit. What's limit? Sorry. <laughs> no worries. No worries. So World of Warcraft uh, is is something that we've always loved. And if I may backtrack a little bit, we have a lot of love for for Call of Duty and League of Legends um, and Overwatch. We've been in all three of those games historically. We've had one of my favorite rosters in, in Call of Duty history um, at, with some of the, the greatest players in my mind who have ever played the game. And same same in, 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 in League and, and same in... in uh, Overwatch as well before the structure was implemented. So just to acknowledge that really quick, we, we love those games and we're fans of those games. Of course, and, uh, yeah. and I think as the right opportunities present themselves, we'll, we'll, we'll be interested there for sure. Um, on the on the limit side of things, that was actually something uh, we announced um, earlier this week. I believe it was Monday and it, they all blend together at this point. But um, World of Warcraft has a really interesting competition in a, what I would say is a non-traditional form of esports where they're putting a great number of individuals towards accomplishing a task, which is their race to world first events, um, where they're launching a new uh, dungeon or a new raid and, and a group of individuals get together and and, uh, and and compete to try to be the first to kill those bosses. And there's really two giants in, in that space and that's method um, and limit, um, limit being the number one North American um, rating guild, and, and method being kind of historically the the European front runner. Um, but a lot of people don't realize that method, you know, limit has you know killed four out of the eight bosses first in one of the most recent raids, and and there's just that little missing piece or extra push that's going to take them over the line towards being the um, the number one rating guild in the world. And that's where we really wanted to come in and work with them directly. And so we've kind of um, formed a, 
um, a partnership with them and and are are really sponsoring them and their whole guild and trying to to get NA to the top of uh, that scene competitively because PVE competition um, in that setting is really unique and it's really engaging and exciting to watch and um, heartbreaking and and joyful and and all of the things that you're really looking for in sports. So Limit's been an, an exciting investment for for us and I know for the for the team at Limit, um, we've had a really great time working with those guys and it's a pretty exciting horizon for 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 that so look out for more there i think that definitely just speaks to complexity's willingness to go against the grain a little bit as a lot of esports organizations are investing in these franchise leagues you guys are like hey there are other opportunities out here where we can separate from the pack and do something that's entirely different and it paid off with the wow classic viewership was just insane and so being part of limit is something that you know you mentioned method but other esports organizations just aren't even touching and so you sort of have this different value add compared to the other ones we talk about audiences and the different things that comes with that so what is i feel like a lot of that can be traced to the history of complexity and seeing how fast things have changed in esports you guys were part of all those franchise leagues but decided not to do that. So what benefit does it have to have 16 years of esports history to look at when identifying trends, identifying where to spend dollars? What benefit does that long history have when identifying where you want to invest complexity in going into the future? I think there's two parts of it, right? 16 years of experience in in this industry um, is significant, to say the least. Um, and I think more so than it shows you what to do, it shows you what not to do. Um, and I think that's the the value that I've had and 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 in working with Jason and and Kyle and Soren and Andrew and Scott and the guys who have been here for a considerable amount of time um, is taking that learning and saying, you know, that that really hot thing that just popped up, you know, it's really exciting, but let's observe and and learn and make sure that we're doing it right. Um, you know, that's that's a big, huge part of, I think our model, you know, like I said, I think we're big fans of, of those leagues and, and obviously great relationships with the teams that have done them, but it didn't make sense for our model. Um, you know, at the time and, and, you know, I look forward to the day that it does. Um, but I think our commitment more so is to players and fans. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we hold ourselves to being, um, aggressive in, in those, um, opportunities more so. I think we're aggressive in providing the best environment for players to play, for doing our best to reach underserved communities and provide opportunities and access points and um, make ourselves available to help usher in those um, opportunities and chances. I think a good example is what we did with with Ducky the Gamer and Mobile Monday, and and we saw a big gap in the ability that the Fortnite mobile community had to um, compete and win money and um, and things like that. Um, and so what we did is was really, really simple. And that was just creating, you know, a weekly tournament structure with an invitational final where we prioritized um, that community. And I think that's what 16 years gets you is you start to realize that at the end of the day, esports isn't about the the brand partnerships or the flashy lights and the big stages and the massive viewership. At, at its core, the foundation of esports is community. The foundation of competitive gaming is community, and it's at the end of the day, it's the fans and the players that make it, it 
it, what it is without that purchasing power of that collective unit the brands aren't interested without those people tuning in every single week you know there is no broadcast there is no media dollars none of those things exist so at our core and with the experience we have is it's acknowledging that and everything that we do i think that's why the very first line in our our kind of our brand manifesto is players first and players always and i think that being kind of on the wall in our bullpen here every day when we're working in the office is it's the first thing i read and the last thing i read before i leave every day because that's that's truly what what our what we are in service to um both players in terms of our pros as well as players that are you know grinding and, and trying to figure out their their entry point and that even includes my own son um and so that that's i think more so how we look at it than anything else is that our commitment is is to that first and, and the rest second. It's very cool. And I think it's an important mission. Uh, we'll, we'll leave off here. I think that was a great, uh, great thing to end on sort of complexity's mission statement right there. Uh, what son is your, or what game is your son competing? In? What do you want to be <laughs> complexity part of? <laughs> so, so it was uh, for the longest time, it, it was Fortnite. Um, you know, and, and much to my own dismay, because it was the first time um, as a dad that he was way better than me at the game, <laughs> um, which is as, as equally exciting as it is kind of uh, depressing. Um, but uh, he uh, he tried a couple of things in between, but he's really been locked in on NBA 2K at the moment. Um, loves the online um, experience, loves uh, competing and, and playing against those who are giving him a challenge every day and getting better. So he, he's definitely really, really engaged by that. So it's fun. It's fun to watch. He stopped playing with me though. Um, Cause uh, I'm not good enough uh, to be on his team, um, <laughs> but he still, he still gives me tips and, and tricks and tells me what I'm doing wrong. So uh, I appreciate him. Yeah. The long gone are the days when my, when I could just smack my younger cousins in video games. Now I get in there and they're just doing flip resets off the ceiling and rocket league. I'm like, Oh, Oh, this is what mm-hmm. we're doing now. Okay, cool. Um, I don't know when y'all passed me, but yeah, that younger generation is going to usher in a new age of esports superstars. They're all just so good at everything they play. Oh, it yeah. seems like. Oh yeah, it's a cultural requirement for them, so it's not a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I used to I used to be on the pickup basketball court, and now they're just grinding their their Fortnite. How many kills you got? How many wins? What's the What's the move there? So it's it's really interesting to see, and that's why I think Complexity used in a great spot positioning for the long term in esports. Because as your son comes of age, goes to college, has the purchasing power, we're going to be seeing hundreds of thousands of kids uh, on the exact same career path who are excited and have grown up with Complexity as a key brand in their life, and are excited to be supporting them, buying jerseys, uh, attending events, all the good stuff that comes with being an esports fan yeah man we couldn't ask for anything more than that that's for sure you cannot you cannot all right cam i'll let you go it's been an hour and 10 minutes thank you so much for taking the time on this podcast i really appreciate it I want to give you a last uh chance to take the mic what does complexity have going on what do you want to promote you talked a little bit about limit anything else going on with the company people should be aware of right now <laughs> i'm sure most people are uh um really interested in uh some upcoming announcements involving our Counter-Strike team, but I'll keep people on the, um, 
on the edge of their seats for that one. But there's other really exciting upcoming things, whether it be on the partnership side, um, whether it be on player signing side. And um, so just make sure you're keeping an eye out. Make sure you're following us on um, on all socials. Uh, make sure you're subscribing to us on YouTube and you'll be one of the first to know, that's for sure. But definitely keep an eye out for the next uh, the next two months. Yeah, really excited to see. One last thing I totally forgot. I had complexity.gg open up. The US Army partnership. What? That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I need to talk to you like how how did that come about? Uh, were you a key part in, in that partnership and why was the US Army so so interested in joining esports through complexity? Yeah, what a I mean, what an amazing group, you know, the the team over there within Army Entertainment and Army Esports. I think we were especially excited when they involved us on the, you know, the on-base single soldiers and the the healthy active lifestyles program that they have. We're, you know, again, we're not talking about um using it as a pure form of entertainment. This is about using gaming as a mechanism for on-base interaction and community development. And, you know, I think that was such a powerful message that aligns so perfectly well with everything we believe as an organization and and showcasing the true, true power of gaming. So we've done some awesome activations on base or we've brought soldiers here and done tournaments we have one coming up this weekend uh, or i'm sorry the uh, next weekend from the 7th 8th and 9th where we're hosting uh, several hundred soldiers um, at the star and we're giving them a chance to compete in tournaments and win prize money and win prizes period and also to get to experience kind of the highest end esports environment where they're doing cognitive testing in our mind jam or they're looking at footage in our replay room or um, just hanging out in our public space or in the player lounge or wherever that might be there's so much great um energy that's within that partnership because you know going back to our previous conversation the intention is right the narrative right is right you know the game selection is is conscious and you know everything that they're doing is with the intention of giving something fun and and exciting to their to their soldiers and i think we couldn't be more privileged um and honored to be a part of that program based on what it's providing back to the people who uh, do so much for this country and for for you know not just our team but every team <laughs> so it, it's a that's a really fun one we're really really especially proud of of the work we're doing with the army that's a that's a really cool partnership and it's it, gaming such a huge part of being deployed overseas i had a couple of friends who did it did some tours and you know gaming was one of their main escapes from from their day-to-day life and got back and one of my friends is just the best call of duty player i've ever seen in person he's so <laughs> i don't know if that's his actual training i don't know if it's how much time he got to play the game while he was overseas but man is he he's he puts on a clinic every single time he plays just plays the game in a different way than anybody else i've ever seen so maybe we'll see some uh some soldiers come back and uh move into an esports career afterwards which would be really cool to see as well i think with the the level of investment they have in that into these programs i don't think it's too long before we see that well i'm certainly looking for that day and complexity hopefully has a leg up on that first soldier uh <laughs> we better <laughs> yeah i think that's a safe bet uh so thank you so much this is cam kelly he's the chief marketing officer for complexity uh, really great conversation be sure to follow complexity on all the platforms if you're not already following them over the last 16 years they've been an important esports organization don't know what you're doing there but if you're not <laughs> fix that now and be on the lookout for their new csgo news thought cam might have i thought he was about to drop something right there and he's like ah we're gonna wait <laughs> but 
Nah, we'll hold on that. Don't blame you one bit. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. I'm Mitch Reams. This is the Esports Network Podcast. Got more great shows coming up for you later this week, but not sure what the timing is. So I'm going to hold off on promoting them for now. This is Cam Kelly, CMO, Complexity. Thanks for listening.